SBS, a world of difference. You're with NITV Radio, on mobile, online and on radio. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land NITV broadcasts from, the Camaragal people of the Gringai Nation and their elders, past and present. We also acknowledge all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander tribes and clans we broadcast to, from the mountains to the plains, from the desert to the sea, from freshwater to saltwater. Yiridamarang, hello, I'm your host Luana Grant and welcome to NITV Radio for this Wednesday the 28th of June. Coming up on the program today, a conversation with Dr Anita Heiss, a proud Wiradjuri woman and well-known author who has recently released her first children's picture book titled Billy Gulling, celebrating the Wiradjuri heroes of the Great Flood of Gundagai in 1852. Anita High speaks about her inspiration for telling this story and the importance of incorporating language through storytelling. Also coming up on today's show, a story from SBS News. Our first ancestors passed through Southeast Asia on their journey to Australia some 40,000 years earlier than first believed. And we will also have stories shared by NITV's NULA program regarding developments at the Banksia Hill Juvenile Detention Centre with the WA government vowing to improve conditions at the troubled facility. All these stories and more coming to you after the latest news. Australia Day 1972 saw the first Aboriginal embassy directed outside Parliament. The native title legislation must be amended. And they've walked this land so many times before anybody came. I am sorry. In this bulletin, court rules Zachary Rolfe must give evidence at Kumanjai Walker coronial inquest. Online gambling ads to be banned within the next three years, according to new report. And Victoria's police union is dismissing a report that claims people of certain backgrounds were unduly targeted during the COVID-19 pandemic. A former Northern Territory police officer has lost an appeal and can be forced to answer a coroner's questions about a fatal shooting of an Indigenous teenager. Ex-Constable Zachary Rolfe shot Kumanjai Walker, 19, three times during a bungled outback arrest in Newindamu, northwest of Alice Springs, in November 9, 2019. Coroner Elizabeth Armitage previously determined that witnesses could not decline to answer questions by invoking penalty privilege, which Mr Rolfe did when he first appeared at the inquest in November. The coroner's ruling was initially upheld by the NT Supreme Court and has now been reaffirmed by the Court of Appeal. The inquest is due to resume in October but will not wrap up until at least March next year. Federal Opposition Leader Peter Dutton says Prime Minister Anthony Albanese's focus on his proposed Indigenous voice to Parliament has been to the detriment of Australia's economy. 
Continuing his tour of Western Australia, Mr Dutton says Australia would already be in recession if not for the resources industry in WA and Queensland. He's describing the government's energy policy as manic and says increased power prices are impacting businesses particularly hard, which feeds into the rest of the economy. Mr Dutton says Mr Albanese is not paying enough attention to the economy. I worry that our country is heading in the wrong direction under this Prime Minister. He's obsessed in relation to uh, the voice and other issues and I think he's taken his eye off the ball on economic policy and Australians are paying the price for that. Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has played down claims by Coalition leader Peter Dutton that the Fadden by-election will be proxy vote for the upcoming Indigenous Voice to Parliament referendum. It comes after the launch of Labor candidate Letitia Del Fabro's campaign for the seat of Fadden on the Gold Coast. Mr Albanese told ABC Radio Gold Coast Mr Dutton remains a divisive figure while he wants to be a source of positive change. Once again, Peter Dutton seeking to divide Uh, The voice should be a moment of national unity. It's about two things and two things only. It's about recognition of Indigenous Australians in our nation's founding document, our constitution. And it's about consulting Indigenous Australians through a voice on matters that affect them. Concerns have been raised over how First Nations LGBTIQ plus communities are being affected by the ongoing debate around the Indigenous voice to Parliament. It's the second time in less than a decade queer First Nations people are having parts of their identity publicly debated after the 2017 same-sex marriage plebiscite. Victoria's LGBTIQ plus communities commissioner, Todd Fernando, told The Point a voice to parliament could also be used to empower those communities. To be able to have a voice to parliament that recognises the specific needs and intersectional needs of LGBTIQ plus First Nations people um, is a cutting, innovative uh, social policy and a response to the need that... uh, the outcomes of LGBT plus First Nations people might be different to that as non-LGBT plus First Nations folk. A parliamentary inquest has recommended a crackdown on online gambling ads, accusing the industry of manipulating impressionable audiences. The final report of the probe into online gambling harm says all advertisements should be phased out within three years, starting with a ban during school pick-up and drop-off times. Inquiry Chair and Labor MP Peter Murphy says online gambling harm needs to be treated as a public health issue, arguing that betting ads are encouraging riskier behaviour amongst young people and children. Social Services Minister Amanda Rishworth says the government will consider the recommendations of the inquiry closely. The Centre for Social Impact has found that health, housing, education and well-being in most parts of the country went backwards in meeting basic human needs in 2021. Getting access to shelter with basic utilities has become harder in most states and territories except for Victoria, with Tasmania, Queensland and South Australia ranking lowest on the Social Progress Index in terms of shelter. The index examined various factors, including the uptake of homelessness services, social housing tenancy rates and demand. It also considered issues with overcrowding and rental affordability in low-income households. 
Professor Danielle Logue is Director of Centre of Social Impact and Professor of Innovation and Impact at the University of New South Wales. She says the index can inspire those in charge to find solutions. The Social Progress Index that we produced at the Centre for Social Impact shows the uptake in homelessness services, the social housing and tenancy rates and demand, the overcrowding measures and rental affordability in low-income households. So if we think about the crisis in terms of these different drivers, it provides us with insights and ideas of we need to address these drivers to make progress. Victoria's police union is dismissing a report that claims people of certain backgrounds were unduly targeted during the COVID-19 pandemic. The report from the Inner Melbourne Community Legal Organisation shows people of African, Middle Eastern and Indigenous descent were up to four times more likely to be fined for COVID-19 breaches than other people. Melbourne suburbs with higher percentages of people from non-English speaking backgrounds also received more fines. The report calls for an independent complaints body to oversee police. Wayne Gatt from the Police Association says the idea that police focus on people based on their background is nothing more than paranoia. Look, um, strap on your tinfoil hats. Um, the concept that, that, that our members are out there and have the time or the inclination to, to go and target particular groups in the community is one for the nutters. I think the majority of reasonable people in our community see this for what it is. It's predetermined ideology um, that's put out there to sully the reputation of police for for what purpose I really can't understand, to be quite honest. Um, Let's not get all distracted by by this. A rare marsupial species has been released onto an island safe haven on the Western Australian coast. They are the first of 100 bush-tailed mulgaras to be set free on the island. Species will join eight others which have been relocated to Dirk Hartog Island in an effort to increase population numbers. Conservationists have been working with traditional owners from WA's Goldfield region as part of the restoration project. Research scientists Dr Sewell Cohen says the project is going well so far. We've seen the vegetation um, recovering really, really well. We're seeing mobile sand dunes being consolidated by vegetation and we're also seeing the numbers of both the the native animals that were here before we started reintroducing them starting to increase, but also the the animals that we've been reintroducing It's also doing really, really well. So the island's changed a huge amount since I started working on the project. And in AFL, three-time Geelong Premiership heroes Jimmy Bartell and Corey Enright have become the latest catch legends to be inducted into the Australian Football Hall of Fame. Five years after their former teammate and star defender Matthew Scarlett joined the group, Bartell and Enright were added in during last night's event. The pair both ended their playing careers at the end of the 2016 season following Geelong's preliminary final loss to the Sydney Swans. And now a look at today's weather. Broome, mostly cloudy 24. Perth, mostly sunny 17. Adelaide showers 15. Melbourne showers 13. Hobart, a shower or two 10. Albury-Wodonga, cloudy 9. Canberra, a shower or two 11. Wollongong, similar 15. Sydney, showers 14. Newcastle, much the same 16. Brisbane, partly cloudy, 24. Townsville, partly cloudy, 27. Cairns, similar, 29. Alice Springs, cloudy, 16. Darwin, 
possible shower 33 and the Torres Strait Islands cloudy 29. And that is NITV Radio News. TV Radio, Monday, Wednesday, Friday at 1pm or anytime online. Welcome back to NITV Radio. I'm your host, Luana Grant. And that was Get Back to the Land, a cover of the late Uncle Archie Roach's song, which he released in 2016 from his album Let Love Rule by the Teskey Brothers featuring the beautiful voice of Emma Donovan. And still to come on the program, we have stories shared by NITV's Nula on the latest news regarding the Banksia Hill Juvenile Detention Centre. We will also share a story from SBS News on fossils found in a cave in northern Laos, confirming early presence of humans on our continent. But first, earlier this week, I sat down to chat with Dr Anita Heiss, a proud Wiradjuri woman. Anita is also a well-known author, writing everything from non-fiction, historical fiction, adult fiction, and also children's novels. She's also nominated for Creative of the Year at this year's National NAIDOC Awards happening this Saturday. Her first children's picture book, titled Biddy Gulling, celebrating the Wiradjuri heroes of the Great Flood of Gundagai in 1852, was published earlier this month. In this conversation, Anita speaks about her inspiration for telling, her, for telling this story and the importance of incorporating language through her storytelling. Firstly, Anita Mundungor, thank you so much for your time and taking the time to chat with NITV Radio this morning. And Mundungor to you. I'm excited to talk to you today. Firstly, congratulations on your latest work, Biddy Gulling, which celebrates the Wiradjuri heroes of the Great Flood of Gundagai in 1852. It's such uh, an important story to tell. Could you please tell everyone about that and what inspired you to tell this story? Well, for listeners who don't know, in 1852, the Great Flood of Gundagai took the lives of a third of the town. A flood went through the town over three days and three nights and two were Adjuman Yadi and Jackie Zaki went out on bike canoes and saved an estimated 59 lives. So they are national heroes and and part of this story and the reason we're getting into schools is because we want people to know the, the story of the Great Flood. When I talk to people and audiences, I'll say, who's heard of Gundagai? And all these hands shoot up. And what they know about is the dog on the tucker box and the song, The Road to Gundagai. But I want people to, when they think of Gundagai, to know about Yaya and Jackie Jackie. The children's book version, Biddy Gulling, Big Rain, was actually born out of a conversation after we launched River of Dreams in Gundagai in 2021. And after that launch that night, we said, what else do you need? And they said, we need this story in schools. And that's where that idea came from because I had never written a children's book before, a picture book. And just last week when I was down in Griffith and Tumut and Gundagai, I spoke to about a thousand kids from preschoolers to year six. And the one, I was overwhelmed with their capacity to actually engage with the story, to actually articulate 
the emotions that they think Yadi felt when he was trying to tell the non-Indigenous people do not build here on the floodplains, that it will flood again. And the way in which they unpacked the issue of issues around the Great Flood and the themes around the story itself and heroism and courage. Um, yeah, so for me, I, I think the aim of the book is to get, you know, I want Koori kids to see themselves on the page, but I want all Australian kids to see diversity in the classroom and also to see history not being told, particularly in the picture book form. And I really love as well how you use and incorporate Wiradjuri language throughout the book and you include the meanings as well. I think it's such a beautiful way to keep documenting language and continue passing it down. Is that something that, you know, obviously you feel passionate about and you want to continue doing throughout your writings? Oh, absolutely, because like many people, not just Wiradjuri people, but, you know, learning language later in life, I didn't learn what should have been or start to learn Um far from fluent, start to learn what should have been my first language, Wiradjuri, mm. at the age of 50. And I always thought, Luana, that I always thought that I didn't have a big enough vocab to write a literary novel. And it wasn't until I, I started learning language um, down at Charles State University, using all these wonderful resources created through the hard work and commitment of Dr. Uncle Stan Grant and the late Dr. John Rudder that I realised that the language that I was missing, the vocab that I was missing in, tell, in writing novels was actually the Wiradjuri language. And I realise now how richer and more meaningful my personal work is, being able to talk about and write about country in the language from our country. And in terms of the kids' picture book, inside the book there's a, there's a code you can scan and it leads you to a, record, a free recording of, the, of me reading the story so that the students and your kids can listen and hear the language while they read the book as well. And there's a whole lot of teachers' resources created by Shelley Ware and Culture yeah. is Life to help teachers in the classroom to talk about the themes and get kids to do activities and so forth. And I know you just mentioned that you are a graduate of the Wiradjuri Language, Culture and Heritage course from Charles Sturt mm-hmm. University. Can you just tell everyone how special that experience was for you and the journey that you went on learning language? And you just mentioned incorporating it into your writing and how much richer your writing mm-hmm. is now that mm-hmm. you can include uh, your language? It's probably the most significant thing I will do in my lifetime. And I've done some pretty extraordinary things that have changed me, but it was such a privilege to sit not only in a Western classroom supported by Western tertiary institution on Wiradjuri country, but also in the classroom that we know as along the river, along the billa and standing in the floodplain and being outdoors and learning how to make crawlings and so forth. So our ways of learning... But it was such a privilege to do that, to benefit from, as I mentioned, the work of, you know, Dr. Uncle Stan Grant and Dr. John Rudder, and to have so many resources, including the human resources of Letitia Harris and Yadi Lad, um, Annie Elaine, Bajaja and, and Lloyd Dolan, who, who were the legacy, part of the legacy that Uncle Stan Grant leaves is, is having taught these people who then teach us language in a space with my Miyagan and with Bolga Bolga Galangu, um, my family and elders. It was just extraordinary. And my own, as I mentioned, my own writing is far more valuable. And I think, you know, I have a PhD, but graduating that day with everybody down in Wagga on, on our country, it's just something that was in the most incredible moments of my life. We're in a space now where we're talking about 
the referendum and so forth and conversation around sovereignty. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I have sovereignty. When I speak language, it's a demonstration of sovereignty and how we are, in a Wiradjuri sense, reclaiming and rebuilding our nation. And language is part of that. And I also just wanted to touch on this year's NAIDOC theme is celebrating our elders. And last Mm -hmm. year you released a book that you helped edit called Growing Up Wiradjuri, which is a collection Mm -hmm. of personal stories by our beautiful Wiradjuri elders. What was that Mm -hmm. experience like for you and working alongside the elders? Uh, Do you know, I have had a lot of book launches in the last 30 years and that was hands down the most extraordinary to have all the elders front and centre, all their family and friends and community there celebrating, I've got it, just got a shiver, celebrating their stories. I mean, the anthology growing up where Adri was born out of a community development project that I chose to do. We all had to do a project at the end of the, as part of our graduate certificate in Adri language, culture and heritage. I thought, well, what can I do with my project? I can actually document some stories and get them out into the community. And again, those stories were written and designed for an upper primary school. And we started with a writing workshop at the end of 2019 at the Wagga City Library. You know, we'll be able to start with, who wants to hear my story and so forth the process was wonderful because I just said just write don't worry about grammar don't worry about spelling it's the story that matters and they were documenting stories that had never been heard and I think what we've got now in this beautiful beautiful book with a gorgeous cover by Lucy Penrith uh, is a gift to the nation by some of our most treasured elders now that anthology could have had a hundred elders in there and I think it needs to be done region by region um, and they very generously shared their stories that document a whole range of experiences growing growing up on and off Wiradjuri country, in bush camps and on reserves, in country towns, in cities and in companies along riverbanks. Some of the stories include knowledge and culture that's been passed down from generation to generation and now being passed on to um, future. Some include childhood games of the past, elements of our language also, um, I think one of the, uh, you know, I know I kept talking about Uncle Stan Grant, but if it wasn't for Uncle Stan, none of us would have been in that course. I wouldn't have met all these elders and this book wouldn't have happened. But his story titled Growing Up Wiradjuri means learning to listen. And I think that's also a message that's quite relevant to us all now. And he says it comes down to listening. And I just want to read a quote if I may. There's, there's a lot of non-Indigenous people don't know how to listen and our lot we were taught to listen. So for listening in our culture and listening particularly to elders, it's normal because we're showing Yinjimata, we're showing respect. And other stories within the anthology also speak to how Wiradjuri people were taught to listen as children um, and, and to learn and also to show respect. I think the stories in the anthology and working with those elders, I just watch them shine now and in a way that I hadn't seen before. And to watch them in the local bookshop in Wagga signing books with TV cameras and (laughs) locals on the street piling in and hearing them talk about how they hadn't had the chance to tell their stories before. We are in a a time where truth-telling is not only needed, but it's expected and it's wanted. And I think um, more of these books and the examples that, the, that all these beautiful elders have shown and given and shared, I hope they become the springboard and the motivation for other mobs to do, whether it's growing up Waka Waka or growing up Wadi Wadi or mm. whatever, that somebody picks up 
the baton in other communities and does the same thing with their elders. Just quickly, mm-hmm. speaking of NAIDOC, congratulations on being named a finalist for Creative of the Year at this year's National NAIDOC Awards. How are you feeling about being celebrated in this way? Oh, you know, Luana, those sort of, I don't write for awards. I write because I want to make change. But so every a, a, something like a nomination or a, being a finalist is just absolutely special and beautiful and I've been part of the process of pulling together other people's nominations so therefore I know the love and the respect and the commitment that goes into that so just knowing that somebody has done that for me like it makes me makes me a bit teary but also Aaron uh, Faso and and Rachel Perkins are mates of mine we've been creative you know working in the spaces at the same time for decades so being finalists alongside these incredible humans is, uh, is also very special as well. But, of course, you and I know it's about getting frothed up and having a good night. I'm having a beautiful dress made, fabric that I saw um, in Australian Fashion Week uh-huh. from in Kunji Arts up in the, in the Territory. I don't give too much away. And a, a fantastic dressmaker here in, in, in Brisbane is pulling that together for me. So I'm very excited about being able to wear some First Nations, a First Nations creation um, on the night. Beautiful. Well, congratulations on all your success so far and Mandangor Anita for taking the time to speak with NITV Radio today. It's been a pleasure to have you on. Respect and love. Thank you. Your community, your conversation. NITV Radio. And that was the amazing Dr. Anita Heiss. It's now time for a quick break and a track by the Stiff Gins. And when we return, we have stories shared by Nula on the development of the Banksia Hill Juvenile Detention Centre. And we will also share a story from SBS News on fossils found in a cave in northern Laos and what they tell us about our early ancestors. Stay tuned. Join the conversation on radio, online and mobile. You're with NITV Radio. Welcome back. I'm your host, Luana Grant, and you're listening to NITV Radio. And now a selection of stories from NITV's NOOLA program. Western Australia's new Premier has declared he wants a fresh start for the troubled troubled plagued Banksia Hill Juvenile Detention Centre, The state government has committed to a series of measures intended to improve welfare and conditions at the facility. Tom Stainer has more. The Premier has confronted the youth justice challenge facing his government, saying a reset is needed at the Banksia Hill facility. The state's sole youth detention centre has become a flashpoint for unrest with concerns repeatedly raised over the welfare of staff and detainees. Riots took place just last month at Banksia Hill where concerns have been raised over prolonged lockdowns and poor conditions because of pressure on its resources. The Premier is now promising more prison guards will be brought into the facility to increase the time detainees can spend outside their cells and allow custodial officers to focus more on rehabilitation. If having more adult justice uh, workers in Banksy Hill enables the facility to be run more appropriately 
and the young people to be allowed out of their cells more often and to be participating in programs, it's definitely welcome. We want to make a fresh start. We want to make sure that we provide this level of safety that we re- that are required. We want to keep the kids safe. We want to keep the car- staff safe. And that will be our abiding objective as a result of these important announcements and steps that we're taking today. The Premier says focus will also turn to employing more Aboriginal mentors at the facility and Aboriginal health service will also be appointed as the government conducts a review to assess its long-term youth justice infrastructure needs. But with some critics warning more prison guards are not the answer to Banksia Hill's problems, the Premier has recognised there are no easy fixes to these issues. The Premier's promise of change at the detention centre came just days after NITV spoke with a teenager who was one of the last to be brought down from the roof of the facility during a riot last month. Speaking for the first time, the 16-year-old girl who can't be identified said the riot was sparked by anger amongst the detainees over continual lockdowns. This exclusive report is from NITV's Western Australian correspondent, Kieran Cox. This girl has her freedom back after a three-month stint in Perth's Banksia Hill. The 16-year-old was involved in last month's riot at the Juvenile Detention Centre, which ended in disturbing scenes on the roof. They were just like kids spread out everywhere. It was out of control straight away because it was a night shift. A night shift is only like 15 guards on The teen says anger was building after continual lockdowns lasting up to 23 hours per day. When a fellow detainee opened her cell door, she headed to the roof with around 50 others. So you were all up there on the roof together? Yeah, that's when everyone was slowly getting down one by one until there was just nine. She stayed on the roof for almost nine hours during a wet and cold night. Then the special operations group moved in. Can you please describe to me what it was like when they tried to bring you off the roof? They had at least four people with tasers and like two people, no, three people with guns. And like, they were just saying, if any sudden movement, we're tasering you. Because they had a little laser. And uh, when we were on the roof, one of the boys, they just stand there and they pointed the laser like straight at his neck. How did it make you feel seeing that laser dot come to his neck? Um, I was just, like, scared for him. This is state-sanctioned child abuse, and it's not right. I mean, the images of female detainees being held at gunpoint on a roof um, ought to shake the nation out of their stupor. Mark McGowan was still Premier when the riot occurred, and condemned the behaviour of the child detainees. It's totally, utterly unacceptable. Um, It's a form of terrorism they're engaged in. We're looking at what else we can do, whether we have to put in place more tough love measures uh, for these juveniles. That's the sort of thing we're looking at today. Mark McGowan resigned as Premier just weeks after the riot at Bankshire Hill. His replacement, Roger Cook, is yet to respond to my emails or calls. The Corrections Services Minister provided a statement saying his immediate focus is on Bankshire Hill and Unit 18. His first priority is to ensure a safe environment for staff and the young people in their care. 
A Department of Justice spokesperson told The Point the facility will continue to have a role for young people in custody. Dana Levitt is working on a class action involving more than 1,000 current and former Bankshire Hill detainees from across the state, alleging serious mistreatment by the WA government. What's going on in, inside Unit 18 in Bankshire Hill is concentration camp-esque. This is a situation of hopelessness. These kids don't have a voice. They don't have any power. Children older than 16 were moved late last week to Hakia, which is a maximum security prison. My understanding there's less than five children in Hakia prison. In terms of the safety, well, it remains to be seen. My understanding is further that the children are placed in crisis care. Now it's an indictment of the West Australian government and in fact, those that actually said that Unit 18 was going to be a better option. That hasn't worked. We knew from the beginning that it would not work. The first time this girl went into Banksia Hill, she was just 14. She says she got into trouble hanging out with the wrong crowd and has been in and out of Banksia ever since. She has self-harmed while in there. Banksia, it was like never this bad, like that bad as it is now with the lockdowns. What needs to happen at Banksia Hill to make things better? The place needs to be fixed, like, and they need a lot of support mentally in there for the kids. The children here are the victims. They're not the perpetrators. They're children. They're children. These stories are brought to us courtesy of NITV's NOLA program. You can catch NOLA every Friday at 3pm on NITV and catch up on SBS On Demand. Visit sbs.com.au slash NITV radio. Welcome back. I'm your host, Luana Grant, and you're listening to NITV radio. Our first ancestors passed through Southeast Asia on their journey to Australia some 40,000 years earlier than first believed. They may not have contributed significantly to our modern-day populations, but fossil findings from a cave in northern Laos confirms the very early presence of humans. Katrina Sterrett reports. Our early ancestors date back far earlier than previously thought and passed through Southeast Asia on their journey to Australia. The latest evidence from Tampaling Cave in northern Laos reveals humans travelled through mainland Southeast Asia between 86 and 68,000 years ago. That's 40,000 years earlier than first believed. Associate Professor Kira Westaway from Macquarie University's School of Natural Sciences is one of the Australian researchers who contributed to the latest report. The story of our first exploits into Southeast Asia, the first time that Homo sapiens um, arrived in Southeast Asia. And it's much earlier than we really anticipated. And it's much earlier than the genetic evidence um, suggests as well, um, which has made it, you know, more sort of controversial, but still, you know, more exciting. The controversy surrounds discrepancies between genetic and fossil evidence. The first discovery of a skull and jawbone in 2009 aligned with the initial genetic timing of some 50 or 60,000 years ago. There's no genetic evidence to determine a link between these first arrivals in Australia and Australia's first people as we know them today. 
Professor Westaway explains. So if, for example, the, the migration was not successful, so they didn't manage to make it round to Australia, um, that, that, that population, then they wouldn't have contributed to the DNA. Um, there wouldn't have been any chance of any interbreeding or anything like that that would have contributed into our DNA. So we think that these were unsuccessful migrations. Um, but again, you know, they were still there at this time, which is still an incredible achievement. Associate Professor Reno Jonas Boyo from Southern Cross University insists this is simply proof of multiple migration patterns. And I think what we see now in history is that Homo sapiens got out of Africa several times, probably even as early as 250,000 years um, as we see traces in Greece. But those migrations outside of Africa were first unsuccessful. They didn't leave any uh, genetic material into the uh, modern-day groups uh, of humans. Basically, what we see with this study is that we did get out several times before uh, from Africa, and one of the earliest human groups in Southeast Asia is around the 80,000 mark. He explains how one of the barriers to understanding the complex makeup of our early ancestors is the superior representation surrounding Homo sapiens. The early humans often evolved as a blend of groupings with other Homo species such as Neanderthals. Homo sapiens were simply better equipped at adapting and therefore appear in every environmental setting. For a very long time, Homo sapiens is this um, apex superior being that when we left Africa, we colonized everything and we were dominant of everything, including Neanderthals that was an inferior type of human and so on. What we start to see now is absolutely not. Homo sapiens is a well-adapted uh, individual in Africa and expands around Africa very, uh, very quickly and lives in Africa over ma- many groups. It's actually not one place where Homo sapiens appears. It's kind of already a melting pot. Professor Westaway explains how a couple of sites in Southeast Asia, as well as a site in northern Australia, offer proof of these early migrations. A site in Sumatra called Lida Asia has evidence of Homo sapiens from 73 to 63,000 years ago. And then obviously the, the site in um, northern Australia, Majabibi, where we have evidence that, that Homo sapiens arrived at, by 65,000 years Ago. So much, much earlier than the genetics would predict. Um, and there seems to be, you know, based on timing, there seems to be a nice connection between these early uh, migrations. So they may have got much further than we anticipated. The findings also change our ideas around migration, identifying unexpected roots of early human movement. Professor Westaway says this is perhaps even more surprising than the timing. I think it's more the location um, the cave is, is not a, a coastal site. It's not an, an island site. It's smack bang in the middle of mainland Southeast Asia. And not only that, it's in an upland region. It's over a thousand metres, uh, big, big high mountains and um, would have been densely forested as well. So I think that will come as a surprise that hominins were choosing to move through or uh, migrate through an area that might not necessarily be what we think is, you know, hospitable to, to, to movement. Professor Jonas Boyo has particular skills as a geochronologist, which enabled him to carefully date the fossils without destroying them. What I do is uh, I'm specialised in dating directly the fossils. It's also very important to provide an age for the fossil directly. 
um, because you always have a doubt otherwise. So what I do, they call me when they find important fossils, and we're very few in the world. We're actually, you know, less than a handful, like probably five or six people doing that. And my technique is I do a, a almost non-destructive dating of the fossils directly. Incorporating a variety of techniques was important in ensuring the findings were robust enough to be confirmed, as Professor Westaway describes the doubt surrounding initial datings. She says they were initially reliant on luminescence dating, which relies on a light-sensitive signal, before finally coming across two cow teeth and a mineral formation hanging from the ceiling of the cave to help measure the sediment deposits. Always there was that element of doubt. You know, I go to conferences, there's always that, oh, yeah, but I don't know about the day. You know, so I knew that this paper had to be decisive. It had to be, this is the chronology for Tampaling. It's robust, it's secure, and the evidence spans over a wide age range. We're not just talking about, you know, a few bones that were dumped into a cave. It's a much more um, regular accumulation than that. You know, it just gives a bit more integrity to the, the, the actual human story. And it's clear the findings reveal a far more complex shared human history. If you look at the modern day humans today on Earth, we all have very different genetic uh, material. Some have Denisovan in them, some like me have Neanderthals, some have neither. So what I want to say is that we are all different and we all have a different story, but we all share the same history. And that's why it's so important to understand the migration of Homo sapiens outside of Africa into Asia, and because it's, it's our history at all of us, even if we have different stories after that. Katrina Stirrett, SBS News. NITV Radio. Share our stories on Facebook. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to wish my mum, Carla, a very happy birthday. And that's all we have time for on today's program. You can listen back to the show anytime online or catch any of the stories on our website at sbs.com.au. You can also find us on Facebook. NITV Radio will be back on Friday, 1 till 2 p.m. with more stories from right across the country. I'm your host, Luana Grant, Mundungor. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> 